Chapter 19, we want to look at verses 23 through 30 this morning. The first will be last and the last first. And let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you give me grace to uh, rightly divide the word in my teaching. Help us to have ears to hear. And uh, again, we just thank you for the Holy Spirit's uh, teaching ministry. uh, The ultimate teacher behind all other teachers. So Lord, we commit our study to you. Ask your blessing upon it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. The theme of Matthew is Christ the King. We are in that section in chapters 17 through 20, uh, the instructions of the King. A great part of Jesus' ministry prior to the cross was about establishing who he is as Messiah God. And the demand was that he be accepted for who he is as God Master. The title Lord, when properly applied to Jesus, denotes him as God Master as sovereign Lord who has authority over all. And Jesus demands to be our number one allegiance. It's really not up to uh, subject to debate. Now, the great lesson in the story of the rich young ruler is that Christ must be accepted for who he is as sovereign Lord over all. A saving faith believes on Jesus as personal Lord, in which allegiance to him is supreme. The lordship emphasis stressed in relation to the rich young ruler is not an isolated emphasis, but rather is a consistent and dominant emphasis in the ministry of Christ. Let me review just a little bit before we get into our text this morning. When Jesus was born, the wise men came. And what did they come to do? Well, they came to worship him because they recognized that he was the God child. So note here, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Well, that sets the tone for the entire book, the entire life and ministry of Christ. Only God is to be worshipped, and they worship Jesus because the King of the Jews is, in fact, God come in the flesh. Matthew 1.23 says he would be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, announced that he came to prepare the way for who? The Lord. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. Who is this Lord? He came to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus. The baptism of Christ marked his inauguration into public ministry. At that time, God the Father made this grand statement concerning his identity. Here's what he said. Suddenly a voice came from heaven. This is the voice of authority. The voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Sermon on the Mount has been called the greatest sermon ever given. In that sermon, Christ builds to this climactic lordship emphasis. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, made it clear that he must be a person's Lord. 
And it's not enough just to mouth the words. They must have meaning. It must be real. And recognizing Jesus as Lord is then seen in the fruit of doing the will of the Father. In Matthew 8, a Roman centurion said Jesus did not have to come in person, but believed that he had the authority to just speak the word and his servant would be healed. Thus he had faith in Christ's lordship authority. And Jesus said this in reference to his faith. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This emphasis on who Christ is as Lord must be personally applied as seen in the climactic illustration, example, of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus wanting eternal life and asking what he had to do to attain it. And Jesus put this challenge to him. He says here, Matthew 12, 21, 19, 21, uh, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, that, that is complete, right with God, where you have eternal life, if you want to be perfect, complete, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Here Jesus put forth a clear lordship challenge. You see, the choice was between Jesus and his riches. What would his master be? Would his God be his riches or would it be Jesus? The young man got the point. He couldn't have it both ways. Either his riches or Jesus would be Lord. And the question is, which will it be? That's the issue. And here was his response. Matthew 19, 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away. Sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That was the problem. This is what stood between him and Jesus. He wasn't willing to put Jesus above his riches, and therefore he went away. You see, once you see the truth of lordship, you see it everywhere in the scriptures, because indeed it is everywhere. Once you see the inseparable truth of Christ as Lord and Savior, you see it everywhere conjoined. This is a package. Christ is Lord God, and He is Savior. And the truth that He is Savior builds on the truth that He is Lord. This is the general outlay of the Gospels, by the way. John, at great length, as seen in the seven I Am statements, develops the truth of Jesus being God in the first half of the book, roughly. And then in the last half, he develops the truth of Christ as Savior in relationship to the cross. Prior to the time of Christ, God tolerated a certain level of ignorance. But now following the resurrection, he demands that Jesus be recognized as Lord. Acts 17, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, but now commands... All men everywhere to repent. Why? Well, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You see, the resurrection provides clear evidence of the lordship of Christ 
He is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. The resurrection provides clear evidence of the Lordship of Christ and as such that he is ordained to be the judge of all. Only the Lord can be the judge of all. After the resurrection of Christ, the New Testament invariably speaks of Jesus as our Lord. In reference to all true believers, he is never spoken of as Savior of all believers and Lord of only some. No, he is invariably shown to be the Lord of all believers because we have believed on him as our Lord. Thus, he is specifically said to be our Lord. Romans, we often say the theme of Romans is the gospel of God. It's a dominant theme there. But I want you to see something in Romans this morning. You picking up on it? Uh, Just a little, you know, dominant theme through here. Our Lord, our Lord, our Lord, our Lord, our Lord, our Lord. I think it's pretty clear, right? I mean, you have to be, I don't know, you have to try to miss this. The Lordship of Christ is a reality for all believers. He's our Lord. There's no doubt about it. This theology that comes up like, you can accept Christ as your Savior, but not have him as your Lord. Where where did we get that? I'm afraid we know where we got it, and it wasn't the Bible. Believers do not always obey like they should. We grow in relationship to the truth of Christ's Lordship. We're not always consistent. But true believers have come to believe. And we recognize the sovereign authority of Christ as our personal Lord. Not only do we find the emphasis of our Lord throughout Romans, but in Romans 14, 6 through 14, we have the emphasis of Christ's Lordship hammered home ten times in these verses. Let me give you just a little sample of this. Romans 14, 7 None of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. You know what this means? It means that Jesus is Lord to us. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again. That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But someone says, what about those compromised Corinthians? Are you saying Jesus was their Lord? And the answer is, yes. Uh, Note how Paul begins uh, 1 Corinthians. To the church of God. We don't have to wonder who he's talking to. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And here he further describes them. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, Paul spells out seven unities that define all true believers, including that we all share in the truth of one Lord, one faith. Ephesians 4, 5. So the emphasis that Jesus made with the rich young ruler that he must recognize him as Lord over all, is not unique to him. This truth is applied to all true believers. 
Thus, Jesus and the New Testament scriptures are very consistent at this point. As Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We love to quote Romans uh, because it is the most systematized presentation of the gospel we have in the New Testament. In Romans 10, the scripture says, Whoever believes, not about, believes on him, will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And how do we call upon him? Well, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To believe on Jesus is seen in calling on him as Lord, which is the idea of recognizing him for who he is as Lord. And whoever does so will be saved. The whole of salvation comes down to believing on Jesus as personal God, Master, and Savior. And I want to emphasize both of those truths. Because the Bible does. You say, well, I think I, I don't have to accept Christ for who He is as Lord. Just, okay. I can't believe scholars arrive at that position. But we have a systematized approach that does that among certain scholars. But this is the whole issue. To refuse to recognize Jesus as Lord is to be lost. And that is where the rich young ruler was at. He went away because he was not willing to put Jesus above his riches. He was not willing to recognize Jesus as his Lord and follow him. And so the text says, he went away. And that brings us to our text this morning as we continue on with the story. Response of Jesus. You know, it says in Mark that he looked at him and he loved him. Jesus loved this young man. It's not that he didn't care. Verse 23, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was shocking to the disciples because the Jews believed that riches were a sign of God's blessing and therefore they were the most likely candidates to enter the kingdom, the rich. Now, it is true that in the Old Testament, God promised prosperity for his people Israel if they were obedient, Deuteronomy 28. But we need to realize that is a general statement regarding Israel in general. And that Israel was an earthly people with special earthly blessings promised to them. In contrast, the church is a heavenly people with an emphasis on spiritual blessings. Now, it is hard for a rich person to put Jesus above their riches. It's hard for them to trust Jesus for eternal things above temporal things. And the... And the the things that their riches offer them in the here and now. This is primarily an issue of the affections and allegiance. That's why 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And Paul there gives a, a special warning to rich believers because some believers will be rich, which probably includes me and very possibly you, as you think in relationship to the all the world's population and all those people living in, in shanty towns and, and who knows what. Uh, we, as Americans, we say, well, I'm kind of middle class. No, you're probably very wealthy in comparison to most of the world. 
uh, maybe in, in our context you are not, but uh, many of us are. But Paul says here to us, command those that are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Don't be cocky. Nor to trust in uncertain riches. You like your riches? Don't trust in them. Uh, the government may take them tomorrow. In fact, they're plotting that very thing right now, I'm pretty sure. Anyway. But uh, don't trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The danger is to trust in riches. To depend upon them and what they can do for you. And the danger is ever there, even after we come to faith in Christ, to again fall back into this error. In contrast, our trust is to be in the living God. Riches are uncertain. They are here today and gone tomorrow. That's what Proverbs says, the book of wisdom. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. See them flying away. Oh, come back, come back. They're flying away. That's what they do. They have a tendency to fly away. They're uncertain. Don't put your trust in them. Someone as well said that riches have a tendency to shackle a man to this earth. Because as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? One day upon seeing a luxurious castle and a state, a Christian remarked, quote, These are the things which make it difficult to die. Yeah, tethers us to this world. When in the flow of the context here in Matthew 19, Jesus emphasized that the kingdom is made up of such as the little children who were brought to him. Generally, the spiritual disposition of the rich is not in tune with humble dependence that characterizes small children. It's hard for them to get to this point. So Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And then he goes on to emphasize exactly how hard it is in verse 24. Verse 24, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus here illustrates it's so hard as to be impossible, impossible. Now, a common misinterpretation is that Jerusalem had a main gate, which was used during the day. However, at night, this gate was shut, and beside it was a small gate called the Eye of a Needle, by which a camel could still enter, but with great difficulty. In order to do so, the camel had to forsake its load and crawl through with great difficulty to get in. And so this view says, likewise, a rich man must forsake his riches, humble himself uh, to enter into the kingdom. But this is hard to do. But that's not right. This view is pure conjecture and lacks credibility. For one thing, if it had been true about this smaller gate being called the eye of a needle, then the disciples would not have been greatly astonished at what Jesus was saying. You see, then they would have understood it was difficult, but possible. However, Jesus goes on to use the word impossible. In verse 26, showing that what he is illustrating is that which is impossible. And this is what they found astonishing. Therefore, the illustration should be taken literally. The camel was the largest animal in Palestine. 
And quite literally, the needle referred to a regular sewing needle. Obviously, it would be impossible to the extreme for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. And yet Jesus said it would be easier for this to happen than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Note here in this immediate context, Christ used the terms kingdom of heaven in verse 23 and kingdom of God in verse 24 interchangeably. Consistently, these phrases are used interchangeably, referring to the coming messianic kingdom. So just FYI on that, on that point, uh, kingdom of heaven, uh, kingdom of God used interchangeably. Verse 25, the dialogue or the, uh, the, the interaction continues. Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? I mean, this illustration of impossibility was shocking to the disciples. The text says here, they were greatly astonished, not just a little bit, they were flabbergasted. Remember, they thought riches were a sign of God's special favor. And, and if anyone was rich, they were thinking they had the best chance of getting to heaven. And so in great astonishment, they cried out, who then can be saved? Meaning in their minds, if the rich cannot get into heaven, whom the favor of God supposedly rests upon, well then who can possibly be saved? Good question. Note all the way through here, and I want to emphasize this, all the way through here, the great issue is salvation. Note, note the, 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 just the flow of the conversation. The rich man comes and says, what do I do that I may have eternal life? Verse 17, if you want to enter into life, Christ says to him. Verse 23, enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, who then can be saved? All the way through here, we're talking about this, this great issue of eternal life and salvation. Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God. All things are possible. Jesus here made a sweeping statement that applies not only to the rich, but to everyone. The question was, who can be saved? And the answer was, with men, this is impossible. People can't save themselves. Rich or poor, nobody can save themselves. Blanket statement. With men, this is impossible. No matter how hard one tries, no matter how much they give, no matter what they do, with men, this is impossible. It's impossible to save yourself. This is a key point here. The rich young ruler said, what good thing shall I do? And Jesus says, it is impossible for you to do it. No matter what a person does, it's impossible to save yourself. No matter what your human means are, it is still humanly impossible. Now, God does not save people on the basis of human merit or human effort, but purely on the basis of His grace. This is a total God thing. And throughout all eternity, we will be worshiping and praising the Lamb for what He has done. As Jonah said in the belly of the great fish, he uttered great theology there. You know, when you're in the belly of the great fish, all of a sudden, sound theology becomes a very important point. 
You know what he said in the belly of the great fish? Salvation is of the Lord. I mean, God's deliverance is the only way out here. I mean, if you're in the belly of fish, you say, well, I think I'm going to try harder. No, there's no hope. There's no hope apart from God. It was there he called on the Lord God and God answered. Salvation is totally dependent upon God. And Jonah came to that realization there in his circumstances in the belly of the whale. Uh, fish, sorry. That's, I'm sorry for my ear there. Fish. <laughs> wasn't a whale. It's a great fish. Uh, it is impossible for people to save themselves. But, 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 quickly add this. But God is able to save anyone. To all who call upon him in faith. You say, anyone? I think there are sinners that are so bad, it's impossible. No, 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 that's not what Jesus said. And by the way, you say, well, you, you don't know what a wicked sinner I am. Yeah, well, what God does. And uh, you know what Paul said? Paul said, I am the chief. I am the worst of all sinners. And you know what? He got saved. God alone is the one who takes the initiative in salvation. It wasn't Adam and Eve that went looking for God after the fall. It was God who came to the garden and reached out to Adam saying, where are you? Romans 3.11 says, there is none who seeks after God. Apart from divine intervention, it doesn't happen. God is ever the seeker. John 6.44 says, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. The point is, we are totally dependent upon God. All of us. No one can make salvation happen. We are not self-made people. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This is God's doing. When Jesus says with God all things are possible, he is specifically talking in context about saving people. Now, obviously, it says uh, nothing is impossible with God. Uh, God cannot act contrary to his holy nature, but he can do anything that is possible to do. He is all-powerful, often called the Almighty. The theme that nothing is impossible with God is a common theme throughout the Scriptures. The person who turns from man to God will find in him the power to do the impossible. As God says in Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's what God says. Look to me, the one who can do anything. Jeremiah 17 draws the distinction very clearly. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. In contrast, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. Here's how it works. We first have to hear the word. And the spirit works conviction through the word. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Something supernatural happens as the word of God goes forth. It's powerful. It's alive. It's powerful. It's a weapon in the, in the spirit's hand as it works in the hearts of people. And here's God's method. 1 Corinthians 1.21, 21, 
Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Don't arrive there on your own smarts, your own supposed wisdom. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, as it is perceived by the world, to save those who believe. This is God's method of salvation. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were put in the deepest recesses of the prison. They were singing and being a testimony for God. And suddenly there was a great divine intervention. As the prison began to shake and all the prison doors burst open. I mean, it was prison house rock time for sure. The prison guard was terrified and cried out to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord. You know, the one that's shaken this place to its foundation? You got a lordship concept going here? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And it goes on to say, And they spoke to him the word of the Lord. Now there's mystery in this process. Of how God sovereignly works and the human response of faith. But behind the entire process, God is at work to make it happen. No one ever arrives at faith on their own. This is the work of God. And at the same time, without the human response of faith, it's impossible to please God. I like what Paul N. says, Moody Bible Handbook of Theology, or the Moody Handbook of Theology. Election and predestination do not, however, take away man's responsibility. Even though election and predestination are clearly taught in Scripture, man is still held accountable for his choices. Scripture never suggests that man is lost because he is not elect or has not been predestined. The emphasis of Scripture is that man is lost because he refuses to believe the gospel. Paul Hines is right in saying that people are held accountable and responsible for believing. You see, we're not just zapped with faith. Uh, We're not just robots. No, we are special creations created in the very image of God. And this is where the ministry of conviction comes in. And people are responsible to respond to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. That's why the Scripture warns, and maybe warning you, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You can't do a thing. But if God's working with you, you are responsible. John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. He's already in the position of condemnation. You get out of that position by believing. He who does not believe is condemned already. And why? Why? Because he has not believed in the name, in the person, who he is, of the only begotten Son of God. You see, the onus here is put squarely on Human responsibility to believe. That's why people are condemned. They don't believe. The reason people are condemned is because they refuse to believe. The Bible talks about saving faith as being, you ready for this? The obedience of faith. 
Romans, with its great gospel emphasis, is bracketed with this emphasis. Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26. You see, there is an obedient response in responding to the gospel. Belief is a response of obedience. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, it says that the second coming, Christ will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those, quote, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. B.F. Westcott makes this statement. He who convicts another places the truth of the case in dispute in a clear light before him. What I like to call the light of conviction. So that it must be seen and acknowledged as truth. He who then rejects the conclusion which the exposition involves rejects it with his eyes open at his peril. Truth seen as truth carries with it condemnation to all who refuse to welcome it. God alone is totally responsible for salvation and yet people must respond in belief to the salvation that God has made available in Christ. On our own, salvation is impossible. But as Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Just like Jonah in the belly of the fish Salvation is of the Lord entirely, completely, 100%. And we should note that there are many examples of wealthy people in the Scriptures who got saved by the grace of God. They include Abraham, David, Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, and so forth. Paul recognizes that some Christians will be rich, as previously noted in 1 Timothy 6, 17. So it is possible for a rich person to come to know Jesus as Lord over all their riches, but only by God's power. It involves a childlike humbling that only God can bring about. And that's true for everyone. Paul makes this statement, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord. Not, not really and mean it. No one could say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You don't arrive there on your own. You just don't. Again, it is God that brings a person to this point, enabling them to call on Jesus as Lord and thereby be saved. ESV Study Bible. For the wealthy to shift their primary allegiance to God is humanly impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, Peter had been listening in on the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler and what Jesus had to say in the aftermath. And so we read verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all. We have done that. We have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> so Peter picks up on the necessity of leaving all and following Jesus. And the disciples have done that very thing. And so he says, Therefore, what shall we have? What's in it for us? Now, many of the commentaries at this point act like Peter's question was unseemly. But Jesus, interestingly, did not respond that way. Rather, he answered as though it was a very, a very appropriate question. Now, it is noteworthy that in dialoguing with the rich young ruler, as well as his answer here, that Christ closely ties the subject of eternal life with the issue of rewards. And both are tied with the idea of following him. Now, there are distinctions here, and yet there is a package. 
To believe on Christ as Lord results in following Him, which will be rewarded. We're not saved by following, but true believers do follow Christ. Not perfectly, but certainly. And in that following, they will be rewarded. Now, in theology, a person can make one of two mistakes. They can either not make the proper distinctions, or they can too rigidly disassociate things that the Lord closely connects. There is precision in rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, some people have a theology of belief that is completely disconnected from following. They completely disassociate the idea of being a believer from that of being a disciple. But Jesus never spoke in those terms. Never. He spoke of belief in terms of following, as seen in the case of the rich young ruler. He made that the defining reality of who has eternal life and who does not. To be a true believer results in being a true follower. Mark 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, that that is complete, right with God. Obviously, you recognize something's lacking in terms of having eternal life. If you want to be perfect, right with God, go sell what you have, forsake it, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, reward, and come follow me. The result of this lordship commitment that puts Jesus over your riches. Well, Peter listening to this said, we've done that. We've left all and followed you, so what's in it for us? Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, again that emphasis, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now here we have a very specific promise given to the twelve apostles regarding their reward in the kingdom. The word regeneration literally means renewal or rebirth and describes the renewal of the world that will take place at the second coming when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. The curse will then largely be removed and the world will experience a renewal, a kingdom renewal. This exact word translated here as regeneration is used only one other time in the New Testament as found in Titus 3.5 where it is descriptive of personal regeneration. But here in Matthew 19, the world is in view. And we have this described certain other places. For example, here in Acts chapter 3, repent therefore, and be, Peter's talking to the Jews, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So the times of refreshing, this time of renewal, may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who is preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. We're waiting for the coming of Christ to set up his kingdom, this time of renewal. Romans 8 also addresses this. Romans 8, 21, 22, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Note the qualifier. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. That makes it clear that this is talking about the time of the second coming. 
Then Jesus will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, which will be the capital of the entire world. So just to diagram it for you, we are here in the church age. One of these days, we're going to be taken out. Perhaps today, perhaps today, live ready. Maybe. Someday. I don't know why it can't be today. It's got to be sometime. Perhaps today. We're in the church age. Rapture is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. Then there comes the uh, 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation, concluding with the second coming of Christ when the church, which is raptured, returns with Jesus Christ as his bride and returns to rule and reign with him. This is when that renewal will take place, the kingdom renewal at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But note the qualifier here. You have followed me is descriptive of the 12 apostles in reference to Peter's question. They are promised a special place of judging, which is the idea of governing in reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom. So the question then becomes, what about Judas? I know you're thinking this, right? What about Judas? I mean, he's one of them. He's one of the 12 here, right? 12 of us, 12 thrones in the kingdom. What about Judas? He was one of the 12. Is he going to have a place in the kingdom sitting on one of these 12 thrones? The answer is no. No. Now we know from progressive revelation that Judas is called the son of perdition. John 17, 12. Meaning the man doomed to destruction. We further know that The new Jerusalem will have 12 foundations and inscribed in them are the names of the 12 apostles. Revelation 21, 14. So in the end, there are 12 special apostles with special rewards and honor, but Judas is not one of them. Judas was obviously replaced. Psalm 109, verse 8, prophetically says of him, and let another take his office. Now, some think the replacement was Matthias, who was the apostle's choice in Acts chapter 1. But I tend to think that he was just that, the apostle's choice. And that Christ's choice was actually the apostle Paul. Now, good men disagree here. Of course, those good men who are right agree with me, but just kidding. Just kidding. I hope I'm not that arrogant. But good men do disagree here, but I I tend to agree with Ed Glasscock's view here when he says this. God nowhere endorses the decision of the 11 who resorted to casting lots instead of waiting for the, the giving of the Spirit. Paul, certainly the Lord's choice, will be the 12th judge over Israel. Now, I agree with Ed, but I would say it just a little more tentative. Just a little bit. But again, note that following Christ is the common denominator here that is characteristic of those who will have eternal life and share in the kingdom. Uh, This is kind of a a, a recurring emphasis here. Come follow me, verse 23, 27. We have left all and followed you. Verse 28, you who have followed me. To be a true believer results in being a follower of Christ. That's the essential meaning of, of the word disciple, a follower. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Christ. Christ said, go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them. True followers are those who follow Jesus as Lord. This was the issue with the rich young ruler. 
He would not follow Jesus over his riches. And this following is what characterized the apostles. They had done that. They left all and followed Jesus, and consequently, they would be rewarded in this way in the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 16, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Rich young really wouldn't do it. Take up his cross, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's what we're talking about. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. And then Jesus, going beyond the apostles, makes a broad application to all who will make the commitment to be his followers. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Hear that? Issue again comes in. Now this is not essentially a missions verse, but rather descriptive of true disciples. The whole flow of thought relates to the discussion with the rich young ruler and how to have eternal life and subsequently be rewarded for being a true follower. Now, recognizing Jesus as Lord has different ramifications for different people in one sense. Not everybody has to grapple with riches like the rich young ruler had to do. The rich young ruler, for him, it involved leaving his riches to follow Christ. For others, it may mean giving up family relationships, putting Jesus as Lord over that, because the family will reject them. As Christ said in Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he said, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. This is the very same lordship issue that Christ is describing here in Matthew 19, 29. In each case, the issue is the lordship of Jesus and what people leave behind for Christ's name's sake, which is to say for Jesus' sake. Christ's promise to true disciples who forsake all in recognition of him as Lord is that they will receive a hundredfold. Now, Jesus is not talking literally at this point because one cannot have a literal 100 mothers. Rather, he is making the point that such a commitment will result not in losing out, but in gaining much more in the spiritual realm. In forsaking an earthly family for the cause of Christ, such people receive a spiritual family that is much larger than the one they left behind. Putting allegiance to Christ above houses or lands results in much greater spiritual assets magnified a hundred times over, so to speak. And then Christ says, and inherit eternal life. Clearly, this decision to follow Christ above all has a reward, as stated in reference to both the rich young ruler as well as the apostles. But beyond the reward, the biggest thing is that these followers will inherit eternal life. This is the greatest blessing of all. This is the great issue behind this whole section as started by the conversation with the rich young ruler who wanted to know what he had to do to have eternal life. All the way through, the issue is ultimately eternal life, which is granted to those who follow Christ as Lord. 
And then tying in with that is the issue of rewards that are given to those who follow. Again, I want to be clear that we are not saved by following. But I also want to be equally clear that a true saving faith follows. In John 10, 27, 28, Christ said, this isn't me, this is Christ. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. Who does he give eternal life to? To the followers who hear his voice and follow him. And although closely linked here in Christ's teaching, the whole counsel of God is clear that the inheritance of eternal life is a gift that is given on the basis of faith alone and not a reward that is earned. Eternal life is a gift given to all true believers. However closely linked is the truth that all true believers who follow will then be rewarded according to their faithfulness in following. All are followers, but some follow more faithfully than others and will therefore be rewarded accordingly. This is one of the last things Jesus says in the book of Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So, notice what Jesus does here in our study. He closely links, leave all, put Christ above all. That was the demand to the rich young ruler. Follow, follow Christ as Lord, which is indicative of true faith. Eternal life, treasure in heaven. A footnote here. The promise of Jesus in Matthew 19, 29 is a, is a broad one that applies to everyone who has left the comforts, securities, allegiances of this life to follow his lordship call. And as we compare the synoptic gospels, we find a two-part emphasis. Mark 10.30 promises the hundredfold in regard to this life. Now, he says, now in this time, or as Luke 18.30 puts it, in this present time. Right now, true followers of Christ gain much more spiritually than they ever give up physically. But then the second part of the promise relates to eternal life. Both Mark 10.30 and Luke 18.30 relate this eternal life to the age to come. And in the age to come, they have eternal life. So it climaxes with the greatest thing of all, which is eternal life, which will be experienced in all its fullness in the kingdom age to come. In short, what Jesus promises is that for those who leave all to follow him as Lord, it will be worth it all. Both now in this present time and in the age to come, where we will inherit eternal life in all its fullness. Verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here we have a proverbial statement from Jesus that shows in the end there's going to be a great reversal. Now the closest antecedent to what he is saying in the most immediate context is the issue of eternal life. As just mentioned at the end of verse 29. In addition to that, the whole surrounding context is related to the discussion related to the rich young ruler who came wanting to know how to have eternal life. This saying of Christ is stated here as really a wrap-up maxim related to the issues brought forth by the rich young ruler, which is then followed by a clarifying parable in chapter 20, verses 1 through 15, which is then concluded with the very same maxim in 
2016. So notice what we have here in context, the flow of what's happening. Matthew 19, 30. Many who are first will be last, the last first. Then we have a parable on grace, which, Lord willing, next week we'll get there. And that concludes with, so the last will be first and the first last. You see, the intervening parable is a parable that explains grace. In the end, all who are the recipients of God's grace will inherit eternal life. No matter their lowly status in this life, they will then be in the eternal first place of prominence in the kingdom. As illustrated by the apostles' promised rule and role sitting on 12 thrones. In contrast, those people of prominence in this life, like the rich young ruler who rejected Christ as Lord, will be eternally last with no rank whatsoever. They will be the eternal last place losers. The kingdom is going to bring about a great reversal where those in, who are first in this life, who cling to the gods of this world and what they have to offer them, will be put down. And those who followed Christ as Lord, no matter their status in life, will be put up into the exalted first class. This is similar to what Christ said concerning salvation in Luke 18, 14, where he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The first and the last place represent positions of greatness and lowliness, respectively. Little children represent the present position of lowliness, while the rich young ruler represents the position of greatness. But in the kingdom, this will be reversed to where many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. God's grace exalts childlike trust that depends upon Him and yields to His sovereign authority. In contrast, those who hold on to self-willed power and prominence like the rich young ruler, in the end, will lose all. Bible Knowledge Commentary summarizes, Those like the rich young ruler who appear to have everything now, the first, will discover one day that they've lost everything. They will be last. Now, C.S. Lewis astutely summarized the whole issue this way. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Jim Elliott profoundly said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God, help us to be true followers, true believers of Christ who eternally gain that which can never be lost. Let's stand and have our closing song.
Well, I hope you can stick around for lunch, but let's give the ladies a few minutes, shall we?